What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. Uh, I am your host, and this is episode number 255. It's been a crazy week in our lives. Uh, Jordan, my daughter, started school last week, first grade. Unbelievable. Uh, We are so proud of her, and it's just amazing how fast the time goes, right? Like it's just, it's, it's literally unbelievable. Like I feel like, I don't know, like I feel like she just started kindergarten yesterday and I blinked and summer's over and she's in first grade. And I talked about this on the blog, uh, like a couple weeks ago, how like I'm in this season of just having to let things go and we always have to let things go right but it just feels like this season of my life it's like very noticeable of having to let go of things um, like last spring our dog passed away shortly after my dad passed away uh, Jordan finished kindergarten uh, she lost her bottom teeth now she's lost her top teeth uh, like that's a that's like a big thing right like her whole smile is different, you know. Uh, just having to let things go, and there's a whole list of other things I could go into too, like uh, my school that I went to uh, for college and seminary. Uh, three degrees from there, I spent like 20 years of my life uh, in and out of that school, and they had to close due to financial reasons, and so that's gone. And I don't really align much with things that I, a lot of the things I took away from there these days, but still, like, it's just weird to see something like that end. And so it's, it's crazy. Like this past week has just brought up a lot of emotions (laughs) for me. I have, I have shed my share of tears again. (laughs) I feel like I've been doing a lot of uh, shedding of tears, which there's no shame in that, right? It's, it's a good thing. So Anyway, uh, we're so proud of her. She's doing amazing. Uh, To celebrate her going back to school, uh, her going back to school gift, I guess. I don't know. We just kind of made it a thing this year. Uh, I got her a skateboard because if you follow me on social media, uh, I bought myself a longboard because I wanted to uh, just go cruising around the neighborhood, you know? And uh, I used to skateboard when I was a kid, like a little bit, not like a lot. I wasn't super good at it. I could stay on it without falling and dying (laughs) that's pretty much the extent of what i could do but i don't know i just i just always enjoyed it so i was like i'm gonna get myself a longboard and then jordan got on it she i mean in a a day a couple hours she was able to skate down the road i'm like that's pretty impressive you know and so she's like i like doing this with you so i'm like oh cool so let's get you a skateboard and so she wanted to get a skateboard with a cat on it and i found one at target you went to target we got the skateboard We've been doing this together. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but I'm telling you this story because uh, the last week I was using my longboard for like two three days. I'm like I feel pretty good on this. I'm gonna go down the hill. <laughs> you know where this is going. I'm gonna go down the hill by our house, and uh, yeah, it's it's gonna be really good. You know, I'm gonna go down the hill and I'm gonna go fast. The wind in my face can be beautiful. I got like three quarters of the way down the hill. And I'm thinking to myself, when is this board going to slow down? <laughs> it just feels like it's going faster and faster and faster. And all of a sudden, the front began to like wobble a little bit. And they say like you're supposed to, when it, when it wobbles, you're supposed to lean forward a little bit and crouch down. Um, I, I don't know why, kind of leaned back and stood up straight. And I just like flew off this thing, <laughs> luckily towards the grass. And uh, went down like a 41-year-old bag of cement. (laughs) I just hit the ground, man. And uh, it was wild. I was okay, though. I got some scrapes and stuff, but nothing is broken. I had a helmet on, thank God. Uh, But other than that, we're we're good to go. So (laughs) anyway, uh, we're having a lot of fun. It's kind of like a daddy-daughter type thing, and she really seems to like it. So uh, who knows if she'll want to keep going with it and get some lessons or something like that. So anyway, today's episode, all that to say, today's episode is with Rose Hackman. Uh, She wrote a book called Emotional Labor, The Invisible Work Shaping Our Lives and How to Claim Our Power. I want to read to you from the Amazon page. 
Uh, here's a little, like a little snippet. It says, a stranger insists you smile more, even as you navigate a high-stress environment or grating commute. A mother is expected to oversee every last detail of domestic life. A nurse works on the front line, worried about her own health, but has to put on a brave face for her patients. A young professional is denied a promotion for being deemed abrasive instead of placating her boss. Placa placating her boss. Nearly every day, we find ourselves forced to edit our emotions to accommodate and elevate the emotions of others, and too many of us are asked to perform this exhausting, draining work at no extra cost, especially if we're women or people of color. Friends, I had no idea. I, seriously, I said this to Rose in the episode. I'm ashamed to say as a white male, I had no idea this was even a thing. And so I read this book and I'm like, wow, this opens up a whole another dimension that needs to be explored. And so Rose and I talk about this idea and we talk about how how is it possible that the church, for those of us who grew up in the church in a patriarchal culture, has poured fuel on the fire of emotional labor uh, as it falls on the shoulders of primarily women and also minorities. And so we talk about that. We explore all of that in this episode. Uh, the book is in the show notes. You need to get it. Also in the show notes are my books, uh, Rethinking Everything and Emerging from the Rubble, and also Patreon if you want to support the show. If this has done anything for you, encouraged you, inspired you, even made you a little bit mad, <laughs> what do you think about supporting the show uh, monthly for as little as $3 a month? Uh, every dollar, no joke, every dollar helps uh, with the bills. Put food on the table, pay the gas, the electric, uh, different things like that. So if you if you have the ability and you can do it, uh, please consider supporting the show. And even if you can't do it, but you want the reward, which is entrance to a, a community, we have a Discord chat group where we chat throughout the course of the week. Try to hop on Zoom once in a while. Uh, if you can't afford Patreon, but you want community, just email me, whatifproject.net at gmail.com. And I'm happy to let you into Discord for free. It's not about the money. Uh, it helps, but it's really about the community and all of us finding some some friends. So anyway, all of that to say, my friends, episode 255 with Rose Hackman. Let's talk about emotional labor. Enjoy. You only make you feel like you could never leave. Do the same, we can't go back. This is all we need. Follow me to make believe and make your dreams come true. This night means forever and so does me and you. We say we love, we say we Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with a new guest, Rose Hackman, who has written a new book uh, about a very important topic that many of us, like myself, uh, might be a little bit unaware of. Uh, the book is called Emotional Labor and is subtitled The Invisible Work Shaping Our Lives and How to Claim Our Power. And so Rose, uh, welcome to the podcast. I loved your book and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Definitely. So before we get into the book, uh, maybe you can give us a brief introduction to yourself, especially for people who are not familiar with you uh, and your work. Who are you? What do you do? Tell us the things that we need to know about Rose. Okay. So my name is Rose Hackman. I am a journalist by training. Um, for the last almost eight years, I've been researching emotional labor as a topic. And for the last, I'd say, five and a bit years, I've been writing this book. Um, so I'm based in Detroit, Michigan. Um, but yes, I am indeed British. People sometimes ask me and I sometimes pretend that I'm actually from Kansas and just put on their leg. But no, I'm definitely British. I just landed in the US about 10 years ago. So awesome. Well, I love your accent because I, I feel like if I could pick an accent, if I could change my accent, it would be it would be a British accent for sure. I can't take any credit for my British accent, but <laughs> you know, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So you grew up, uh, so you, I'm sorry, you said that you're a journalist by trade. Is that like, what have you done in your past regarding journalism? What does that look like for you? So I trained, I actually trained in Italy with um, the Associated Press. I wow. trained in the print room as well as in the production, like that. they have a television network production team. Um, so yeah. I did both of those. Got my first steps in Rome in my, just out of college doing that. 
And then I wrote for an Italian paper for a while, Vita. And I came to the US because I got married, but I continued working as a journalist. Um, I'm actually since divorced, um, which is part of my feminist you know, journey. Um, and I've been, I, I was a features writer for The Guardian um, right. for quite a few years. And then I basically stopped being a full-time journalist in order to concentrate on this book. Okay. And so with the launch of the book, do you have any like plans now? Like you're going to be, obviously the book's going to be out there in the world doing things. Like, do you have anything lined up that you're going to be working on in conjunction with the book? Yes. Lots of opinion articles about not just the personal sphere, but also professional sphere, as I'm sure yeah. we'll go into emotional labor is a huge part of the future of work, the future of our economy. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, after COVID happened, I think we all started realizing that we really rely on this invisible form of work that is mm -hmm. feminized. Um, and so I think a lot of conversations like that, I'm hoping to be able to weigh in to get some articles out there, but also to get conversations going, because it's been many years of writing this book but really a lot of it has been quite solitary. So I'm really excited about getting out there and having conversations with people and talking about it in you know real life. That's really good. All right, so I'm going to be honest. I already told you this, but I'm going to be honest for our listeners as well. Uh, I'm almost ashamed to say that like emotional labor and the problems that are stemming, that stem from it, uh, in particular for women and minorities, like you talk about in the book, is something that has really never cross my mind as a, as a white as a white male because as someone who grew up in a very conservative uh fundamentalist evangelical christian world that i'm now rethinking deconstructing taking it all apart uh we just like accepted gender roles for what they were what, what we were told that they are i should say and we never really questioned them and so i think many of our listeners grew up in the same kind of world that i did and so i suspect i'm not the only only one. So I was wondering if you could just begin by slowly taking us into this topic of emotional labor, like really big picture. What is it? Yeah. What does it mean? And then maybe hone in on some of the, the details a little bit, like what are some examples? Uh, most importantly, what are some of the ways that this is problematic for women and minorities? And I will say this, like I, I came prepared today to be your student. <laughs> like I said, this is new for me. And so although I've read the book and uh, we're going to talk today uh, I'm going to take some notes because I want to learn from you. So as long as you want to take on answering the questions, you are free to roam where you'd like to roam. <laughs> okay, so let's see. Let's see how I go because sometimes I park myself into rabbit holes. So if I go into, <laughs> I like rabbit out. holes. We're good. Okay, good. So okay, so um, I'll I'll give you the big picture academically. So actually, yeah. emotional labor is an academic term that was coined 40 years ago by someone mm -hmm. called Arlie Hochschild, who is a phenomenal sociologist. Mm -hmm. Um, and she wrote a book called The Managed Heart. And at the time, she was really thinking about work and she was looking at the ways in which the service sector was taking over from the manufacturing um, industry yeah. in terms of share of the American economy. So she looked at what specifically people were expected to do, workers were expected to do in those service sector jobs. She specifically actually famously looks at flight attendants, mm -hmm. which is a kind of totally new kind of job at the time. Um, and she says that whereas, for example, people in the manufacturing world are expected to use their physical bodies to work, it's physical labor mainly, mm -hmm. there is a, a component of, the, a central component to the service sector that is emotional labor. Mm -hmm. So it's in not so much providing um, a specific service as much as an emotional experience. So in the case, in the state of, sorry, in the case of flight attendants, um, Flight attendants are expected not necessarily as much. Sure, they're expected to provide you with food and drink or with, um, you know, they tell you safety measures in case of anything bad happening. But really what they're there to do is to make passengers feel safe, make mm -hmm. passengers feel like they're having an experience in the plane. They're mm -hmm. there to smile. You know, a good a flight attendant is not going to be in a bad mood. They're going to be there smiling. So emotional labor is the main important part of being a good flight attendant. It's the same across so many other jobs in the service sector. So if you think about a waitress, mm -hmm. providing you a positive experience is actually almost more important than taking your order and getting you your food. Yeah. Um, you think about uh, a customer service representative, you know, you don't want a customer service representative to be rude. You need right. them to be providing that, yeah. that um, anyway. So I worked so, for Apple for 11 years. And so as you're talking, oh, wow. I'm thinking about that because I 
they graded us, so to speak, on not just like our performance in terms of our metrics, but it was more about asking the customer on their surveys, how did the employee make you feel when you're in the store? Did you feel welcome? Did you feel embraced? Did your did your needs matter to the employee? And that's a whole nother element of the labor than just presenting them with facts and figures about the computer. A hundred percent. So that's a hundred percent emotional labor. Okay. And What's kind of fascinating about that is in spite of the fact that the service sector has been taking over and is really one of the massive massive sectors in our economy, Mm -hmm. we've never really accepted emotional labor as a thing. And that is because Ali Hochschild at the time, she equates emotional labor in the workplace as basically a a workplace manifestation of something that's happening in private that's called emotion work. She calls it emotion work. Nowadays, we just call both of those emotional labor. So emotion work in private is the feminized, generally very invisible work that women are expected to do to provide not just families, but communities with a sense of well-being, with a sense of connection. It's that endless empathy that we expect of mothers. It's that putting other people first that we expect of, you know, daughters, sisters, Mm -hmm. and mothers and wives. So um, so 40 years on, you know, here we are in 2023, literally 40 years on from when she first coined the term, we accept physical labor, creative labor and intellectual labor as, as real forms of work and emotional labor in spite of that is so central to so many jobs, millions of jobs on our, in our economy is still not really considered real work. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I tried to do in this book is not just explain what it is, but put it into examples that are both professional and personal and make it seen because that's yeah. one of the, sadly the big things about emotional labor is it is not work that is seen. So can you give us some examples of what what this looks like in terms of being problematic or troublesome, whatever word we want to use for for women and you talk about minorities in the book? Because right. like I was thinking as you were talking obviously about myself and being an apple and that's one form of emotional labor, but how does this get intensified? for a woman? Like what are some examples of that? So so one of the things when I that I say when I'm trying to define emotional labor is I mm-hmm. say it's defined really by three three terms. It's generally rendered invisible, it's thoroughly mm-hmm. devalued, it's feminized, thoroughly feminized, sometimes it's racialized, and yet it is essential to the smooth running of our society. So, you know, what's interesting to me when you think about work mm-hmm. is that people People who have pushback against emotional labor being a real thing will say, but it's just women being better, you know, better at at something. Why do we have to call it work? It's just like, you know, it's women being women. But traits, traits that are deemed feminine are not allowed to ever really be seen as work or valuable. But traits deemed masculine are constantly entering the marketplace and and are seen as like lauded and seen as valuable. So the first thing that happens is any kind of trait that is seen as feminine we just we just devalue in our society and and that's sad because i think a lot of women are really good at doing it it's also sad because i think a lot of men you know mm-hmm. either good at it also but also maybe would like to do it more and maybe they're afraid of being more emotional and more emotionally literate and attuned because it's not really seen as something that's reinforcing their masculinity which is another rabbit hole i need to avoid going into <laughs> but um so in terms of examples you know in the in the private sphere, you can think of not necessarily just, you know, checking in with loved ones, not necessarily just being the one who um, is emotionally present for children and family members, but it can be anything that's really tied to community well-being. Mm-hmm. So anything that you're doing to be thoughtful, whether preemptively or, you know, in the moment, and that ends up being things like cooking a favorite meal to make someone feel good. It also ends up being something like, you know, uh, it's just I mean, it's so much act, anything that's like actively being loving really is mm-hmm. emotional. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't need, you know, I say emotional labor, it doesn't need to always be seen as work, but as an activity that necessitates time, effort and skill, mm-hmm. it's certainly always valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about, again, going back to even like Apple, just a simple example. I can remember there was this situation where customers came in with children and the children were like all rambunctious and and being all crazy. And clearly the mother was like very upset. And the initial response was for the person who was running the floor to get a girl, to get a woman to go over and deal with this because clearly her emotions can be, you can understand that because you're, you're a female as well. So you can, you can help kind of 
rein it in a little bit. And I thought to myself, I didn't have any terminology for this at the time. I thought to myself, that's weird because I feel like, I feel like other people, I feel like men are, can, can handle those kind of things as well, but it was just initially to throw a girl over there and let them deal with it. And that's one, that's a wonderful example. And it actually gets me back to, I think one of your parts of your question, the last mm-hmm. question, which I didn't get to, which is, you know, because it's seen as something that's so feminized, women who are in the workplace might not necessarily be doing a job that is centrally emotional labor, but they yeah. will always be expected to be providing emotional labor generally for free um, on top of the tasks that they're completing, you know, as part of their job. So whereas a man, let's say, whether it's in the Apple store, in a law firm, you know, or from, you know, even in a construction site, you know, yeah. if there is a woman there, she is going to be expected to be endlessly communal and sweet to everyone around. She's going to be expected definitely if there's a, you know, child suddenly yeah. that appears, definitely she's going to be the one who's going to be expected to take care of that child. Yeah. And, you know, she might very well be slightly better at it because she's been encouraged and trained to be better at it because sure. as a girl than a woman in the world, we're not really given much choice. We're expected mm-hmm. to be extremely adept at emotions and being in community with others. But that doesn't mean that that there is no injustice when someone is basically being expected to provide a second shift on top of their actual shift where men, for example, in this context would not be. Yeah. Are these conversations, you know, are these conversations happening at higher levels in companies? Like are, are people, are, are, are they like around the table where they're making decisions about like pay and things like that? Like are these conversations coming up or is this all, new things for companies to consider i think honestly i think emotional labor i think people you know people are aware of emotional labor just like your apple you know survey yeah um they're clearly understanding the value of emotional labor but what hasn't been happening yet is companies tend to take advantage of the fact that we don't see emotional labor as really real or having much value so that they offload it onto workers and workers therefore who are providing it Mm -hmm. are not necessarily seen as having hard skills and are not necessarily therefore properly compensated for it and that's i think part of why this conversation needs to happen because we do not just need to understand the essential form of work that is actually enabling our societies and economies to run in private. We need to start understanding that as in this, you know, in, in this year of 2023, as automation is increasingly taking over, mm-hmm. skill set that workers are going to need to have are going to be much more tied to emotions and how you're making other, you know, customers or passengers or clients or patients feel, that is not really something that we can properly automate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think these these conversations, I, I hope to make these conversations happen more. I think these conversations are so far to me are slightly hypocritical mm-hmm. um, because actually companies really rely on emotional labor and maybe have not yet owned up to how much they are reliant on it. Yeah. Um, and I do think that honestly, it was at this point 30 years ago, we started having a conversation about emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm, that, yeah. um, but what was kind of wrong or what was missing from that conversation was the idea that, of of emotional intelligence being something that was an active, ongoing form of work. We just mm-hmm. kind of more saw it as a skill that some, some people had and some people didn't. We also only really talked about it in positions of leadership as opposed mm-hmm. to really seeing the workers on the ground who are already incredibly emotionally intelligent providing all that work but again we're not being compensated for it adequately yeah. or not being seen while they were doing it yeah and what i want our listeners to hear too is that you you mentioned this earlier is that there's a a piece of emotional labor where it causes you to downplay your own emotions correct for the sake of other people's experiences or of their emotions again thinking of like a retail environment you're often told to check your emotions at the door kind of thing because the client who's in front of you, their emotion, their experience is top priority right now. Yours is not. And so you're kind of, you kind of learn to stuff your stuff in a bag. And when you step out on the sales floor, it's all about the person in front of you and your stuff is left in the back in the break room. And I think bringing that into like the home, like you said before, it's a lot of times with women and mothers and parents, you know, they're expected to, put their own stuff on the back burner so that they can be present to make the experience best for everybody else in the home and the family. 
Totally. So exactly as you said, mm. um, emotional labor is this editing work of feelings that you will do on yourself in order mm. to have an effect on the feelings of other people, which quite literally involves putting other people's emotions above or ahead of your own. Yeah. And that expectation is 100% um, especially in private, offloaded onto women. So women definitely not um, expected to censor themselves in an experience. They're expected mm -hmm. to really think about the experiences of others as a priority. And I love the fact that you're bringing in the Apple experience again, because that's definitely, again, you know, what's expected of so many retail workers, service sector workers across the board. Yeah. You know, we live in a world where we're told, you know, bring your whole authentic self to work, but that's definitely not the case for most workers. No, not at all. Because if you brought your full authentic self to the sales floor, something you'd probably lose your job. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. I was. Yes. I want to send your book, some copies of your book to my friends who still work at Apple <laughs> to bring these conversations up because this is a really helpful thing. I mean, this is really, this will generate, I think, some really helpful discussions for people who are in that world because it's something a lot of people don't consider, which I think is great. Totally. And, you know, my primary lens in the book was gender, although mm -hmm. I tried to really be as intersectional as possible and think about all sorts of different scenarios. But one of the really the real part of what emotional labor responds to is power, which mm -hmm. is to say that because it is so invisible and devalued, we tend to offload it, not necessarily just onto women, but whoever is considered the least powerful in a group. Mm -hmm. So when workers take it on once more, there's a kind of an understanding that those people have less power. So that's, there's actually a kind of a fun, to me, kind of pro-labor rights element to this mm -hmm. book that's, that's actually hopefully really recentering the the worth that workers are creating in these circumstances mm -hmm. and maybe giving them the tools whether they're male workers or female workers to kind of you know demand what their true work is creating in terms of value yeah that's, that's really good so one of the things that i was thinking uh, and we mentioned this before we hit record that i was thinking when i was reading the book is i was wondering what thoughts you have about religious institutions kind of um maybe pouring gasoline on the fire of emotional labor. And I asked that because, uh, like I said, the world I grew up in, you know, gender roles were just cemented in place. And I was thinking uh, this morning, actually, as I was preparing for our, our talk, that there was this author who was really uh, big when I was in seminary. His name is John Eldridge, and a lot of our listeners have probably heard of him. But he, he did a lot of work, uh, maybe like 15, 20 years ago, on uh, writing these books, uh, helping men and women kind of discover their, their true selves. And the book for men was called Wild at Heart. And the book for women was called Captivating. So right off the bat with the titles, you could see that there's already a big difference there. And the books, I think, did they did a lot of good in their own right uh, for people. But I think they also did a lot to cement these gender roles into place because men were painted as these warriors, right, who stormed the castle. They saved the princess. They're always up front doing all the hard work. And the women are kind of in the back. And they're the gentle caretakers, they're the princess, they wear the dresses, they want to be saved, like all these different kind of things. And so I'm wondering, like with that sort of theology, with that sort of those ideas kind of floating around these institutions that also sometimes don't let women teach, don't let them preach, don't put, don't put them in positions of leadership. Like, do you think, or have you read any kind of research on the church being sort of gasoline being poured on this already raging fire? Of emotional labor like what are your thoughts about that okay so i don't have you know i don't have there isn't a lot of research is sure um yeah. i did do some research of my own before the interview because i thought this might come up mm -hmm. um and there's to start there's some research that's starting that's really trying to um think about religion within the context of emotional labor mm -hmm. You know, I want to say before I fully answer the question that to me, what I love about thinking about emotional labor in a religious context and actually specifically in a Christian context mm -hmm. is that the values of love and service and forgiveness to me are all emotional labor, basically in action. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, even forgiveness, which is a huge one. I mean, service is the obvious one, mm -hmm. but but forgiveness, you know, is if someone you think has has either done wrong to you or you think has done wrong to you, you're expected to 
give up any feelings of you know retribution yeah. or anger or whatever and you're yeah. expected to then embrace them in love and put their feelings you know above mm -hmm. your own mm -hmm. and so to then bring it back to gender roles in the church what is very sad to me about the way in which we as a society and including in religious environments or conservative religious environments especially we tend to really entrench one gender into one very narrow set of traits and another gender into a very narrow set of traits is that actually we're kind of cutting off men generally from the these values that are to me the center of christianity of love forgiveness yeah. empathy and action and you know service um but to kind of then answer your question more frontally yes you know putting men in positions of leadership letting them be the teachers the pastors, um, although actually in my Church of England, women are able to be too, but, you know, letting them take on those roles definitely sure. doesn't change um, the kind of inequality and the devaluing of emotional labor and of care work. Um, you know, we can't really extract current day religion from the patriarchal lives mm. or the pat patriarchy we're living in. And I don't necessarily think that being extremely gender normative mm -hmm. is devout in any kind of way yeah. you know but, but that's you know that's me yeah no for sure and it's funny because you know a lot of times one of the arguments that people make is well you know this is the way it is in the bible this is the way look look at there's a clear patriarchy here in the bible this is the way that it works that must be the right way but what i'm starting to learn and i had a few like biblical scholars come on the show to talk about this is that just because the Bible took place, the writings of the Bible took place across the backdrop of patriarchy. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's telling you that that's the way it's supposed to be. It's it's the world at the time. These are the way this. These are the places where the stories took place. And so it's it's only normal for us to read it and see patriarchy in there. It doesn't mean that that's saying that that's the normative way to do things. So I think that's a really important point uh, to bring up. But I love what you said about how. I never thought of it that love, forgiveness, and service, that these at the very heart of these things is emotional labor. Like I never thought of that before. That just that really struck me because I feel like there's so many different directions that you can go in. If you rethink those things in light of emotional labor, I think it just it brings all different elements to the surface uh, regarding those things. So I, I'm kind of stuck on that in my in my mind at the moment. <laughs> I'm I'm so glad to hear it. And I, you know, again, I, I definitely grew up Christian. Um, but it sounds like your context is much more informed. So, I'm I'm very cu curious to hear <laughs> ongoing. You know what your thoughts are about those relationships. I mean, certainly from a gendered perspective, what I found interesting. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Church of England, which has, you know, is by no means a perfect institution at all. Um, I think they've just launched a kind of an inquiry into whether they can change the way in which we refer to God in the Bible, mm -hmm. because with the understanding that God is actually genderless. Mm -hmm. um, and should we be thinking that conservatives are not going to love this, but, you know, should we be thinking of God as they, yes. you know, yeah. He, yeah. which ends up really putting masculinity on a pedestal that's not necessarily warranted in terms of what the teaching actually shows or is. Yeah, we've had, I've had those discussions on the show before, so no one's going to be upset with you. <laughs> we've talked about that before. It's, uh, you know, because everybody refers to God as he, because again, I mean, the Bible, again, written in a, a very, ma a very patriarchal culture, it was just normal for them to see, to look at the higher being as, as a man, as a male. But now, you know, rethinking a lot of those things, I often refer to God in my own prayer life sometimes a she or her thinking of God more as like my mother. And then there's also times where I refer to God as they, because it's like, I, I feel like God can swing whatever way on the spectrum God needs to, in order to meet the individual where they are, because sometimes you need a father, sometimes you need a mother. Sometimes you don't know what you need, but you just need something that's bigger than yourself. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really powerful. And and to go back to what you were saying, I do think is as humans, and there's a long tradition of this, we have a tendency to look at the world around us and justify it, you yeah. know, so instead of actually trying to understand what's actually going on, we just, we try and justify it and make, let's say patriarchy in this case, you know, the proof of its own validity. And we don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily make logical sense. So Charles Darwin in the book, I bring up, mm -hmm. you know, 
he has obviously some extraordinarily important contributions to the way in which we think of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also definitely thought saw women as less than. He saw saw us as second class citizens, as as you know, in, infants, basically in, infant adjacent. And he yeah. also saw non-white people as quote unquote savages, mm-hmm. seeking to justify the way in which at that point the British Empire, you know, had created these hierarchies. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So you said you said earlier, and we talk you talk about this in the book as well, but I wanna wanna kind of drill into it a, a little bit anyways. Because I think a lot of people are at, might be asking this in their minds right now is how do you respond to the person who is thinking, well, you know, men and women are just wired differently, right? Like it's just part of our of our DNA where, you know, women are more caring and empathetic and men are more headstrong. Let's just kind of get to the point, move on to the next thing. You know, women comfort, men conquer. It's just like we're just genetically wired that way. And I'm wondering, like, is there any any validity to that? at all, like in terms of the way that we're wired, or is, is that just something that we learn based upon like an upbringing? Is it more learned or is it more wired? Is it a mix of both? <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. There's so many ways of answering this and I'll mm-hmm. try and get as comprehensive an answer. Sure, as possible. sure. Um, you know, one of the clapbacks that I've seen that's actually totally on point to me is if we really were so thoroughly wired on one end or the other, mm. we wouldn't be putting so much en- energy in policing people who veer from, you know, mm. from very narrow um, sets of traits. But I will answer you specifically. Mm. So, mm. research from neuroscience and psychology consistently find that all humans, regardless of gender, are relational. Mm. So that means that we need connection to others, to other human beings, in order to survive. Yeah. In order to establish those connections, you need love, you need emotional labor. All humans, and this again is psychology and neuroscience, all humans are um, emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. So we all perceive the world through our five senses. Mm -hmm. And actually what's been wonderful in the field of neuroscience specifically over the last decade or so is that we can really see the way in which our mind perceives the world and then kind of then forms actually it's not necessarily thoughts it's actually more emotions first Mm -hmm. so there's a book called how emotions are made by lisa feldman barrett um, who's an incredible neuroscientist that basically explains this um so we're all emotional first Mm -hmm. and actually separating us out into kind of basically rational versus emotional is is quite fictitious actually we can have emotions that we then transform into thoughts but the idea of separating ration, rational thought out from an emotional thought is, mm-hmm. is totally wrong and actually a bit sexist because we see anything that's emotional as kind of less valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but to then also, again, go back to the original question of are we just hardwired one way or the other? Mm-hmm. What research shows us again is that a lot of the ways in which we are in terms of our traits and personality is tied to incentives and motivation. Mm. And actually our our mind is constantly aware of expectations and will react in function of those expectations. So if you are a girl and then a woman in this world, you know that the expectations are that you should be other oriented, that you should be um, sweet and not too loud, that you should be empathetic, that you should be you know, displaying caring uh, traits. Mm-hmm. And your mind is functioning in actually a very lazy way that's afraid of what they call counter-stereotypic backlash. So you, mm-hmm. you're not going to be other-oriented or sweet. You are going to face, you know, a reprimand, whether it's professionally or personally. You're going to be yeah. seen as abrasive in a way that, yeah. for example, men with the same sets of traits won't. And on the other end, men who are maybe too emotional, which is to say too maybe too other-oriented, too demure and sweet and not rational enough or seen as rational enough, not ambitious enough, not, yeah. not selfish enough. Um, if, if they veer from those traits by being more like um, what we expect of women, they're definitely going to be policed too. So there's really just a massive incentive structure that is set up in our society to try and force men into very narrow boxes of being ambitious and aggressive and selfish and women as other-oriented, empathetic, endlessly caring. 
But to, to really think that just based on sex at birth, we're all going to be these kind of perfect opposing character traits. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. And I think that anyone who's operated in the world and who's made friends with people, you know, we can all see the way in which we're all trying to perform these traits because we have to. Yeah. But I know a huge amount of men who are incredibly sweet and empathetic. And I know a lot of women who are very ambitious and that's clearly part of who they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I have a friend, uh, she's been on the show before. Her name is December Wells and she's, um, she's black and she's gay. And she talked to me very, very in depth about how a lot of times for her, especially we worked together at Apple. And she said, there were so many times where like a teammate would, would come into this, come into the back room. And my friend December would have nothing going on. She just has a face on that maybe looks like it's a little bit disturbed, but all of a sudden it would be like, why are you so angry? What's the matter with you? She's like, well, why, why am I not allowed to express an emotion that might be a little bit negative or have my my face look a little bit more downcast. Like if it was a white man who was having that same look on his face, would you have as big of a problem with that as I do, you know, as you do with me? And so I opened up my whole world as well because I was like, I never thought of that before, but it's true. When you see someone who's a woman or a minority who has the same kind of face on that maybe a, a white male does, it's a whole different issue. And in, in my mind, I'm like, why is that? It doesn't make any sense. Totally. So it's, that's that's a perfect example. So we have these cultural understandings that women should be endlessly sweet and empathetic. And yeah. as soon as we veer from that, we're told, you know, that we have resting bitch face, which right. I actually, I don't have resting bitch face. I have been told for many, many years at this point that I have, you know, almost like resting tragic face. Mm-hmm. People think that something's happened and I'm terribly, and you know, this is just my, my face at rest. Right. And I'm not constantly providing everyone around me with a smile, which would be forced emotional labor, right? Yeah, yeah. Funny, you said before too about how this stuff gets hammered in because we get rewarded, so to speak, for operating within the the confines of our specific roles that we're expected to perform. And I noticed this a lot when I was in school and I didn't make this connection until just right now. So, so bear with me. But when I was in seminary, you know, we took all these classes on like leadership um, you know, preaching and things like that. And there was this, there was this expectation that if you were a man, you were expected to be very upfront, you know, very, um, you know, forceful kind of in your, in your demeanor, very, like, I'm trying to think of the word, like very courageous in your preaching, you know, very, very upfront, you know, in a very, like, not, not afraid kind of thing, not timid. And I'm, I'm like the opposite. I don't know if it's just the way that I was brought up, whatever it is, that's just not me. Like I would much rather be the behind the scenes guy sitting in front of my computer, doing my things, having these conversations, like much rather be doing that as opposed to upfront in front of 500 people delivering this powerful message, bringing people to need. But I always felt like there was something wrong with me, you know, because like, I'm not, I'm not like that. I don't fit that element, but I also felt like I wanted to fit that element because I felt, I saw other people who fit that element and they were accepted and they were brought into the inner fold much quicker than someone like myself would be able to get into. So I I spent so many years trying to cast out that demon, whatever whatever you want to call it, of trying to be somebody who I really didn't feel like I was to fit into that group. And I feel like that just hammered in that gender role, that gender bias, whatever it is, into place that I'm now just beginning in the last year to undo and realize that there's nothing wrong with me. This is who I am. And this is who I'm going to be. Totally. And there's there's also a lot of value in the way, yeah. we, you know, obviously there is value. You know, I'm not going to say that there isn't value in someone who has an inspiring presence that is just both aggressive and charismatic, which is maybe what we expect and sure. want yeah. as it stands. But actually having someone who is able to uplift others as they're communicating their message and also be a thoughtful, you know, server as well as a teacher in the background, you know, should be valued. It doesn't make sense that it's not, but because of these very, very, very stark separate gender traits and because of the way in which we devalue anything that is feminized in our society, you know, sadly men in some situations get penalized um, for it too. Yeah, that's very true. Okay. So last question for you. Uh, this is obviously a lot of information, a lot of a lot of things that you've given us to think about. Uh, the book for our listeners is jam-packed with tons more things. But what are some 
what are some takeaways that you would have for us? Like what's the, so what, like what, what can the average person do with this information that you've given us to put it into practice in their world, to make some kind of a difference, whether it's in their family in their workplace, but especially for generations to come, because like you said, these are new discussions that are happening. So although you and I might not see the fruit of these things, perhaps, uh, you know, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren will. So what can we do to begin planting these seeds, watering these seeds um, as we go forth on our way today? Thank you for your question. Um, I think the main thing is you need to start by actually seeing emotional labor. We've been taught to so, you know, just to accept it so much as just something that is, as opposed to something that is constantly being done and performed. Mm. And then once that's done, you need to, we need to actually start valuing it. And that means not just valuing it as necessarily a form of work, but valuing it as an essential, you know, um, activity that is so much of why families and communities are able to not just survive, but thrive. Yeah. And that also entails valuing the people who are doing it, you know, and no longer seeing, basically, we see people who do it because it's service, really, because it's putting other people's, not just emotions, but experiences above of your own, it's ends up, we end up thinking that maybe the person who is doing it is a server, mm -hmm. but not in the Christian positive sense in the kind <laughs> you know, in, like sure. they're in the old school, you know, feudal sense. Mm -hmm. um, so visibility, value, ideally we need to see it as part of a fair exchange, mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily money in exchange for labor, although in the workplace, I think we need to do more of that. But in private, it can be part of a mutuality that could be ongoing, mm -hmm. you know, recognizing that this person is doing something for you and that you're going to be doing something for them as part of that exchange. And then this is kind of a very academic term, mm -hmm. but I'll try and quickly unpack it. We need to abolish what um, is referred to as status obligations. So we need to um, stop seeing someone's status as a woman, as a wife, as a daughter, as a sister, as meaning that they owe everyone else free emotional labor. Mm -hmm. That is feudal. We don't expect that kind of, we don't expect work from anyone else that is of any kind, uh, any different kind of work in, within that context, all other forms of work are part of an exchange or at least a valuing. Mm -hmm. Emotional labor is the one form of work that we just think is totally okay to extract because you're a woman, because honestly, even in this country, because you're black, because you're an immigrant, you know, mm -hmm. and you owe me this very, very devalued form of work. So visibility, value, fair exchanges, and then this idea of no longer really casting people into these terrible devalued groups that mean that we think it's totally okay to extract work from them. And these are conversations I would think that you can begin having even with your kids at a young age, right? Like I'm thinking of my daughter's five. So I'm thinking just of random conversations that we've had at the dinner table, things like that, where these kinds of issues come up. Like even thinking about, we were talking about the other day, what was it at dinner? She was talking about like forgiveness, like forgiving her friend for hurting her and things like that. And she said, she made a comment that like, well, I have to, I have to like forget how I'm feeling kind of thing so I can forgive this person. And I remember we, my wife and I were like, you don't have to, it's not about downplaying your feelings. So take all the time we need to feel your feelings, you know, be angry because they took the ball, whatever it is, like be, feel it. You don't have to, you don't have to press away your feelings in order to elevate the the feelings of somebody else. And so just trying to get her, help her understand that, that it's not about downplaying yourself to uplift somebody else. There are times when we need to do that, I guess, but it's not about doing that all the time. So I'm trying to think of like just little things like with my own child about how to have these conversations. You, you do not need to silence yourself. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So others constantly um, yeah. and automatically. And then mm -hmm. obviously that's what part of what we've been talking about is, you know, also with boys and men, we should not be punishing boys and men who are expressing emotions outside of right. anger, you know, because we do accept anger from men, but we, which is an emotion, by the way. So men are very emotional when they're angry, but we don't really accept other forms. And actually aggression is a form of emotion too, but we don't, we don't encourage emotional literacy in young boys. And therefore we don't accept or tolerate anything outside of anger and 
extreme dominance um, later on in men. And I think that is heartbreaking, not just to women who might be on the losing end of it, but also to men who might be cut off from their own emotions. You know, and as we know, middle-aged white men are the most likely today to be committing suicide. They're the most likely to, to die deaths of desperation, which is alcohol or drug driven. And that is heartbreaking. And so this kind of understanding is not just useful for women to empower women. It's actually something that should empower men, you know, bring them back to their full emotional selves. It's heartbreaking that we've cut men off from their full emotional selves. Yeah, that's right. Well, Rose, we are just about out of time, but this has been a lot of fun. I've re- I've learned a lot from you. I have so many thoughts in my head that I have to take apart and, and think about, but thank you for taking time to join us and thank you for your work. It's, it's going to make a really big difference in the world. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And really quick, where can people go online to connect with you, your work, any websites, any social media places you want to send us to? Um, well, I have a website that's very sparse at the moment. That's um, <laughs> rosehackman.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Rose Hackman. I am on Instagram, which I'm slightly more active. And my publicity team has me about to post some videos, which is <laughs> rosiebug, R-O-S-E-E-B-U-G-G. Um, I have a newsletter, Emotional Wonderful. Wonderful. And that's Excellent. it. Substa- is it Substack? It's Substack. So it's emotional.substack.com. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll put the links in the show notes and maybe we'll do this again sometime. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Oh, 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 oh,